You're entering outer brightness. Welcome, Fireflies, to this episode of the Outer Brightness Podcast. Here today, we have myself, Matthew, the nuclear Calvinist, and we have uh, Paul, the apostate Paul, actually. And uh, we're kind of continuing our our series on addressing all the gospel topics essays from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints official website. So for those who don't know, the gospel topic essays were a set of essays that were started to be written around the year 2011, 2012. And they were each addressing specific issues or specific topics related to the church. And some of them were basic doctrinal gospel essays related to what they believe. And some are more kind of controversial or deeper topics. So we've already previously talked about the gospel topic essay named Becoming Like God. But today we'll be addressing the gospel topic essay called Are Mormons Christian? And so we're taking this directly from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints website. And so we'll just be reading it uh, section by section, and uh, then we'll kind of be talking about our thoughts and uh, sharing ideas and, and how we would understand it as we would have as Latter-day Saints and how now as post-Latter-day Saints, how we kind of approach that. So it'd be kind of more conversational and you know less structured. So hopefully this will be interesting and of use to both Latter-day Saints and to our evangelical friends. So before we start, though, Paul, do you have any, uh, any comments you want to make about the gospel topic essay or fill in any gaps that I may have left? Uh, yeah. So just kind of quickly, the, this question, are Mormons Christian is one that you and I have both faced uh, in our lifetimes. Um, and so, you know, we'll be speaking from our experience and we understand that for Latter-day Saints, this is a heart issue. It's an identity issue. And so we'll try to be uh, light and careful as we speak about this topic, but um, we're also going to um, try to be bold and speak truth as well. Yeah. Thank you for pointing that out. I appreciate that. Yeah. We, we want to hopefully, I mean, we're, we're very clear about our position and so we're, we're not going to try to soften our, our position or try to, try to, you know, try to, uh, what words slip in my mind. We're not going to change our position. Basically. We're going to be just honest and upfront at the same time. So hopefully we can be loving and we can share this in love to our LDS friends. So is all right if I start with the uh, first section? Absolutely. All right. So our Mormons Christian first section. Members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints unequivocally affirm themselves to be Christians. They have worshipped God, the Eternal Father, in the name of Jesus Christ. When asked what the Latter-day Saints believe, Joseph Smith put Christ at the center. Quote, the fundamental principles of our religion is the testimony of the apostles and prophets concerning Jesus Christ that he died, was buried, and rose again the third day and ascended up into heaven. And all other things are only appendages to these which pertain to our religion, close quote. The modern day quorum of the 12 apostles reaffirmed that testimony when they proclaimed, quote, Jesus is the living Christ, the immortal, the immortal son of God. 
His way is the path that leads to happiness in this life and eternal life in the world to come, end quote. In recent decades, however, some have claimed that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is not a Christian church. The most oft-used reasons are the following. Latter-day Saints do not accept the creeds, confessions, and formulations of post-New Testament Christianity. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints does not descend through the historical line of traditional Christianity. That is, Latter-day Saints are not Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, or Protestant. Latter-day Saints do not believe scripture consists, consists of the Holy Bible alone, but have an expanded canon of scripture that includes the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine of Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price. Each of these is examined below. So that's the end of the first section. So, uh, Paul, what, what were kind of maybe your general thoughts about this introduction before we get maybe into the specifics? Sure. So um, just want to note that I think it's I think it's accurate for them to say that in recent decades, uh, some have claimed that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is not a Christian church. Um, I think that really kind of ramps up uh, in the mid to late 1970s uh, as evangelical Christians really begin to interact with uh, Latter-day Saints. And um, at that kind of around that same time, Going into you know late 1970s, going into the early 1980s, you have a really big push uh, on the part of the LDS Church on missionary work. Um, that's when you get you know Spencer W. Kimball, um, every member of missionary, and and really uh, the the I'm trying to remember how he worded it. You know that uh, every worthy young man uh, should serve a mission. Uh, that was a big uh, messaging uh, aspect of of what we heard is Latter-day Saints growing up. Uh, it's, it's stuck with me to the point that I did serve a mission, uh, because I, I believed it was a, a commandment and something that I had to do. Um, so, uh, kind of, you have that, those two things going on. You have the LDS church ramping up its missionary program, uh, at the same time that you have, uh, evangelicals coming into contact with those missionaries and, and then, um, you know, reacting to it. So, um, yeah, that's that's pretty accurate. The history there. Uh, I don't want to get your thoughts here, Matthew. On what do you think about uh, the the three reasons they give as the most oft cited reasons that Latter Day Saints are not Christian? I mean, I think it's at least when I was so thinking back to when I was Latter Day Saint. I, that's kind of how I saw it. You know, I saw it as well. We're not. You can't trace the church back to you know the beginning in some fashion. So that would be the uh, the second point, and because. Latter-day Saints also do not accept the, the historical creeds and confessions of, of Christianity. So yeah, that's, I mean, I do agree with those points and the fact that they have additional scripture, although there are, you know, there might be other groups uh, probably blanking off the top of my head, but you know, other, other Christian groups kind of, especially charismatic groups kind of believe that prophecy can possibly continue. You also have Seventh-day Adventists, which don't have new scripture, but they do hold, there are some that hold the writings of LG White to be inspired inspired prophecy. So it's not that there's extra canonical, you know, books that maybe necessarily automatically places outside of Christianity. I don't know. I, you know, there might be different ideas about that, but I do definitely agree with those first two points. And uh, as a post-Latter-day Saint also, I would agree that it's not just simply the rejection of the creeds and confessions, but what is actually contained within those ecumenical creeds and specifically uh, the, the three most, you know, ancient creeds that were accepted by basically all Christianity are the Apostles Creed, the Athanasian Creed, and the Nicene Creed. So that's basically accepted by Protestantism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and Roman Catholicism, and, and, and all types of Catholicism since there are different, you know, there are different rites. But yeah, uh, that, 
what's actually taught in those creeds is basically accepted by all of Christianity and, and rejected by not only the LDS church, but uh, other churches like Jehovah's Witnesses and Unitarians and other, other uh, branches off of Christianity. So yeah, I agree with that. Uh, but it's, it's, it's not simply just rejecting the creeds. I'm trying to, the point I'm trying to make is what's actually contained in the creeds is important. So rejecting those is kind of places one outside of historic Christianity. All right, good. So um, would you, I, I might challenge the, the second one uh, a bit. Um, I, I definitely see your point uh, and agree with your point that, you know, as a Latter-day Saint, um, I would have argued that the, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a restored church. Uh, the, the priesthood authority was restored by angels. And so it doesn't have a line of authority or a history that traces back through the centuries uh, to the early Christian church um, because they believe in a, in a general apostasy uh, of the Christian church where the authority uh, to perform the ordinances of the Christian faith the sacraments of the Christian faith was not on the earth, according to Latter-day Saints, uh, until it was restored to Joseph Smith uh, in 1829. And so, therefore, um, you know, they don't see themselves as, as part of that broad river of, of Christianity. Um, but I would I would argue that from a historical perspective, uh, the if the Protestant Reformation doesn't happen, uh, Mormonism probably doesn't happen either. <laughs> um and I know Latter-day Saints uh, would, you know, might take umbrage at that statement, but um, Joseph Smith is reacting to the Protestantism of his day. And that's really clear when you read the history. Uh, it's pretty clear when you read Bushman's Rough Stone Rolling uh, that that's what he's doing. And so uh, I might push back on that that second point a little bit. It, it, it's a rhetorical point, but I don't know that it really holds up from a historical perspective. Yeah, that's a good point to bring out. It's yeah, that's one thing that I believe does a lot of saying is I believe that all these, maybe not all, but many of the ideas that the LDS Church taught and believed in, you know, that were revealed to Joseph Smith were believed by the earliest saints, but then were lost this whole time. But as you said, you can kind of trace back some of these ideas. I mean, even even in the church itself, they talk about how Swedenborg had this idea of the three degrees of glory. And so, you know, uh, Joseph Smith kind of attributed, said, said he, he gave a quote to an effect that said Swedenborg had some kind of light. You know, some degree of light that God had given him. So he, even in that single point, the LDS Church admits that it's not anything taught by them. But I, I was thinking more along the line of, in terms of lineage, maybe not teachings or authority, but just you know, um, I guess you could just say that in terms of his distinct uh, Joseph Smith's distinct you know view and understanding of the gospel and everything, he had his own kind of unique flavor, I guess you could call it that hadn't been found before it kind of branched out on his own, but I guess you could say that about a lot of other, you know, uh, different branches from Christianity is that sometimes someone will have a different idea or a different viewpoint and kind of branch off from a different group. I guess you could, I guess the only difference is that with Joseph Smith, he did, it wasn't like he was part of one church. Right. And then he changed one thing and then left that church and started a new church. It's kind of like, he just, it was its own brand new thing. I don't know. Do you know what I'm, see what I'm trying to go with there? That's kind of why I, I had the idea that, there's no line that directly, you know, goes into Christianity, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I, I, I would argue though, from a, from a historical perspective that there's um, there are some other groups uh, on the American frontier at the time that are doing similar things. Not exactly the same. You're right. Joseph Smith has some innovations that he brings to that broader uh, restorationist uh, approach, but uh, there were other groups seeking for, uh, a restoration of New Testament Christianity 
the Campbellites, um, you know, uh, Alexander Campbell and his father, Thomas Campbell, who both came here from Scotland uh, and settled here and, and were initially part of the Presbyterian church here and broke off from the Presbyterian church uh, and then joined with the Baptists and then broke off from the Baptists and uh, took up the idea that um, all sects were, um, I, I guess they even used the term apostate, right? And and that uh, they, they, they took the position that, that we're not the only Christians and that we, we want to... S- as, as Barton W. Stone wrote in the um, last will and testament of the, uh, I can't remember which which uh, town presbytery, but um, he, he basically wrote a last will and testament for his presbytery uh, in which he says, you know, that, that they want to sink into union with the, with the body of Christ, right? So um, the idea being there that, uh, they're, that they're looking at and, and approaching the church uh, broadly from a, from a body of Christ perspective, right? It, it, it transcends uh, creeds, it transcends denominations, it transcends sects. And uh, it's made up of, of all people who are uh, followers of Christ and, and believers in Christ and, and those who have uh, been born again. And so um, they, they took a little bit different approach to trying to restore primitive Christianity, as they would have called it. Uh, they, they, they talked about the search for the ancient order, um, and it's, it's a very Protestant uh, approach, you know, back to the sources kind of approach and the source being the Bible. And so they were seeking to restore uh, the primitive church and the way that it operated and the doctrines that it held uh, from the Bible alone. Uh, and so, you know, no, no creed but Christ, uh, the, you know, where the Bible speaks, we speak, where the Bible is silent, we are silent. Those are some of the things that they, they would have said, you know. Um, and Joseph Smith, very much in New York, uh, because there were uh, people in New York and the Northeast who merged with Campbell in his group, um, kind of preceded some of the things he was doing, but had similar sentiments. And then you have Barton W. Stone in Kentucky, and you have um, Sidney Rignan involved in that group as well. So there, there are a lot of other uh, restorationist groups alive and, and kicking at the time uh, Joseph Smith comes on the scene and, and he, uh, you know, goes to Kirtland into kind of the heart of that restorationist, uh, you know, where the restorationist movement was very popular and, and, and growing. And so um, he definitely kind of plugged himself into that mindset and you see him adopt some of the things that they talk about, um, you know, when he when he writes in his uh, 1838, I believe history, which is different than his 1832 first vision history. When he writes there that he was told that all you know all the creeds are corrupt and um, all that kind of stuff, that you can see him adopting the language that will be uh, appealing to the restorationist leaning uh, Christians that he was uh, among there in in the Midwest. So. Um, I, th- I think there there is a I think where I'm going with all that is that there there is a, a broader movement that although he innovates for sure uh, he's a part of that broader restorationist sentiment. Yeah, yeah, definitely for sure. I would agree with that. All right. Um, any other thoughts you have on this first section here, this introductory section? Uh, not really, just because it's introducing each one, and then I'm sure we'll go in more depth in each one. So yeah, no, that's all I have for now. You're listening to Outer Brightness, a podcast for post-Mormons who are drawn by God to walk with Jesus rather than turn away. Outer Brightness. Outer Brightness. Outer Brightness. Outer Brightness.
There's no weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth here. We were all born and raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah, more commonly referred to as the Mormon faith. All of us have left that religion and have been drawn to faith in Jesus Christ based on biblical teachings. The name of our podcast, Outer Brightness, reflects John 1, 9, which calls Jesus the true light, which gives light to everyone. We have found life beyond Mormonism to be brighter than we were told it would be. And the light we have is not our own. It comes to us from without, thus outer brightness. Our purpose is to share our journeys of faith and what God has done in drawing us to his son. We have conversations about all aspects of that transition, the fears, challenges, joys, and everything in between. We're glad you found us, and we hope you'll stick around. All right, let's go on to the second section. Uh, Latter-day Saints do not accept the creeds of post-New Testament Christianity. So scholars for scholars have long acknowledged that the view of God held by the earliest Christians changed dramatically over the course of centuries. Early Christian views of God were more personal, more anthropomorphic, and less abstract than those that emerged later from the creeds written over the next several hundred years. The key ideological shift that began in the second century AD after the loss of apostolic authority, resulted from a conceptual merger of Christian doctrine with Greek philosophy. Latter-day Saints believe the melding of early Christian theology with Greek philosophy was a grave error. Chief among the doctrines lost in this process was the nature of the Godhead. The true nature of God the Father, His Son Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost was restored through the prophet Joseph Smith. As a consequence, Latter-day Saints hold that God the Father is an embodied being a belief consistent with the attributes ascribed to God by many early Christians. This Latter-day Saint belief differs from the post-New Testament creeds. Whatever the doctrinal differences that exist between the Latter-day Saints and the members of other Christian religions, the roles Latter-day Saints ascribe to members of the Godhead largely correspond with the views of others in the early of others in the Christian world. Latter-day Saints believe that God is omnipotent, omniscient, and all-loving and they pray to him in the name of Jesus Christ. They acknowledge the Father as the ultimate object of their worship, the Son as Lord and Redeemer, and the Holy Spirit as the messenger and revealer of the Father and the Son. In short, Latter-day Saints do not accept the post-New Testament creeds, yet rely deeply on each member of the Godhead in their daily religious devotion and worship, as did the early Christians. Matthew, what are your initial thoughts on this section? Well, I mean, we've talked a lot about the Trinity in other episodes, so for those who want to more in-depth discussion on that. Uh, that's in our article faith series. That's uh, article faith number one. Uh, so we've talked a lot about the Trinity and, uh, but we haven't really, maybe we haven't really gone through like a really in-depth view of the historical, you know, historical quotes from the fathers about the Trinity. And maybe that would be something good to do in the future is to kind of try to go in context with, you know, quotes from church fathers that show that, you know, the Trinity wasn't something that just popped up out of nowhere and it was not combining Christianity with Greek philosophy. Um, so I, I just really disagree with, you know, that assertion that it, you know, that the God had just completely changed, you know, after the apostolic era that was just totally unknown to them, you know, the later views it's, I think what we've described is that as new people have come on the scene, like you have, uh, Nestorius, you know, well, that was much later, but, but Sibelius, you know, he, he tried to come up with this idea, but it's, it's what we call modalism now, where basically God takes different forms or modes and so, you know, God, the father was in glory and power in the old Testament. And then in the incarnation in the new Testament, the same person or the same God took on flesh. And then, you know, after Christ died and ascended into heaven, you know, resurrected and ascended, then, you know, he came down as the Holy spirit. So it's like, you know, the same God 
you're taking three modes rather than having three, uh, three persons uh, or three subsistences is a more technical term in God there, you know, there's only one God, one simple subsistence and, you know, he manifests himself in different ways. And so that was Sibelius. And so when he came on the scene, you know, Christians had to come together and say, well, okay, well, how do we address this? And so they, you know, they had debate, they looked at the word of God and, you know, they, they looked at the faith that had been passed down to them and they, you know, they say, okay, well, how do we address this? And so they developed language to counteract these, these new ideas that were contrary to what they had all believed. And so it's not that things are drastically changing over time. It's just that they're using language and, and yes, they might use philosophical terms or what had been used by Greek philosophers, but it's, it's to, it's to give clarity to what had already been taught. And so that's kind of what, what happens. And you see that with every time someone comes on the scene, like I said, Sibelius, and then not too long later, Arius came on the scene and tried to say that there was a time when Christ was not, when there's a time when Jesus did not exist, that he was a God and subservient to God, but not truly divine because to be truly divine, you had to be eternally God. So he was saying that Jesus is a God, but not eternally and truly divine. And so then that's where the Nicene Council came into play and then the Nicene Creed. So, so to say that, you know, that this is completely brand new is just not true. And, and like I said, uh, it might be good to have an episode where we talk about the fathers and, and the early, you know, the early quotes from the Trinity, but here's a few that I had found earlier. Um, so one, one big thing is that anti-Trinitarians will say that, well, there's some will say that, you know, there's not three persons, there's only one person. So that would be like Unitarians and oneness. Uh, so we see uh, quotes like from Justin Martyr. So he was in the second century. He wrote, for in the name of God, the Father and the Lord of the universe and of our Savior, Jesus Christ and of the Holy Spirit, they then received with the washing with water. So um, he's, he's speaking uh, of those who are converted, I believe, you know, they being the, those that are coming to Christ in baptism. Um, so he's speaking of the three divine persons as distinct persons. So they're not just one person. So, you know, we also see with Polycarp, he was at the end of the first century and into the second, he said, Oh Lord, God almighty. So speaking to the father, I bless you and glorify you through the eternal and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, your beloved son, through whom, uh, through whom be glory to you with him and the Holy spirit, both now and forever. And so we see again, this, the three divine persons. Uh, but I think, you know, the one thing that, that, just really struggle with is this idea of substance, you know, in the Nicene Creed it talks about the three persons are one substance. Um, so Tertullian, he was in the second century, uh, close to the end of the second century. He wrote this, uh, he wrote, we define that there are two, the father and the son and three with the Holy spirit. And this number is made by the pattern of salvation, which brings about unity and Trinity interrelating the three, the father, the son, and the Holy spirit. They are three, not in dignity, but in degree. Not in substance, but in form, not in power, but in kind. They are of one substance and power, because there is one God from whom these degrees, forms, and kinds devolve in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so this was at least a hundred years before the Council of Nicaea that he was saying he was using this kind of language of being of the same kind, you know, of the same uh, power and the same substance, the Father, Son, and Spirit. And so we do see a lot of this, you know, this this language that's already being used by early fathers before the Nicene Council. So I just disagree with this assertion that, you know, Greek philosophy merged with Christianity to make the Trinity, because you can look in the past and see Trinitarian quotes from the beginning. They might not be as clear and elucidated as later quotes, but they're there. So sorry, it's kind of a long-winded answer, but I, I felt... I felt very passionate about that that particular part. That I know yeah, that's about. that's good. I was I was going to key in on that as well, um, and I'll just kind of uh, follow up on on what you said. I'm glad you brought up Tertullian. Um, 
this this kind of charge that uh, how do they put it in the essay? Um, the key ideological shift that began in the second century AD after the loss of apostolic authority. Um, I like how they kind of insert this assumption that the loss of apostolic authority uh, means something. It, it means something to Latter-day Saints, clearly, um, but to historic Christianity, not so much. Um, but they say that that resulted from a conceptual merger of Christian doctrine with Greek philosophy. Uh, we talked about this a little bit, actually quite a lot in our last uh, Gospel Topics essay discussion uh, when we covered the, the essay, uh, Becoming Like God, because the LDS doctrine of uh, eternal intelligences, uncreated, co-equal with God, co-eternal with God, um, that is very similar to uh, the doctrine that Origen had put forth uh, in the second century with regards to a, a belief in uncreated souls and intelligences. And so, you know, that that idea itself uh, is one that was rejected later on uh, by the, the broader church. Uh, and Origen was anathematized at the Second Council of Constantinople. At least those teachings of his were, were anathematized, not all of his teachings, because he's, he's a very revered church father. But those teachings of his uh, are, uh, are anathematized. And those teachings come specifically from his understanding of Greek philosophy. So the, this, this charge that Latter-day Saints make, it's, it's sort of like, um, you know, when, when, when someone is projecting, you know, they're, they're accusing their, the people they're arguing against of the very thing that they're doing. Um, that's, that's what this argument about Greek, Greek philosophy ends up doing. And, and I, I want to point that out, but I, I will note here though, that when I first encountered this argument, uh, as made by James E. Talmadge in the great in his book, The Great Apostasy, uh, he was an apostle of the LDS Church, and wrote this book called The Great Apostasy, where he kind of outlays, you know, lays out uh, Christian history and everywhere where he thinks it went wrong. And a major argument that he makes within that book is is this admixture of Greek philosophy argument, which was very popular at, at at the time that Talmadge was writing at the, at the kind of around the turn of the, the 20th century, there was, there was a lot of Christian scholarship kind of looking into that with the fundamentalist uh, movement. Um, the, you know, the, the fundamentals of the faith movement kind of thing that was going on within Christianity at the time. And um, so when I first read the great apostasy, apostasy by James E. Talmadge, when I was in the missionary training center, uh, getting ready to leave uh the United States and go to Hungary on a, on a two-year mission, that argument was really compelling to me because it, it seemed ironclad. Oh, wow. Yeah. They, you know, there's this, you have the new Testament, you have the apostles teaching uh, what they learned from Jesus. And then once the apostles die, there's this uh, syncretism that takes place of Christian teachings with Greek philosophy. And it wasn't until I uh, was really close to leaving the LDS church and was, was studying uh, through uh, a New Testament course at a Catholic uh, college um, that I learned that, um, in fact, uh, a lot of the things that Latter-day Saints claim come from Greek philosophy don't. They, they actually were the uh, early church fathers trying to work out, as you were saying, Matthew, uh, how do you work out the doctrine of the Trinity from the scripture? Uh, they wanted to be faithful to the scripture. And so that's that's how they 
kind of reason to the doctrine of the Trinity. But uh, with regards to Greek philosophy uh, and Tertullian, since you brought him up, um, I was reading about Tertullian and what he had to say uh, about the the Father and the Son and 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 that kind of thing. Um, let me see if I can find what I was reading. Uh, sorry, I I had it and then uh, I should have highlighted it on my phone. Uh, you got anything to say while I look for this? Sorry. Well, I was looking at other quotes like uh, from Justin Martyr. Um, I believe it's Justin Martyr. I was trying to find the quote exactly, but I know that there's one quote from a church father that LDS like to point to a lot. It might be it might be Irenaeus, but there's one where it's they, you know where they refer to Christ as the second God or as another God in addition to the Father. Are you aware of that one? I was trying to find yeah. that. They use that as evidence that you know they believe that Jesus was a, was a completely separate God, but I couldn't find where that was. Yep. Uh, yeah, they do use that one. Um, so I, I found what I was looking for though. Um, so I'm reading this article uh, from it's um, let me find the name of the article. It's called uh, History of Trinitarian Doctrines. It's uh, it's in the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Um, and it says of Tertullian that uh, it says this quote, under the influence of Stoic philosophy, Tertullian believes that all real things are material. God is a spirit, but a spirit is a material thing made out of a finer sort of matter. Does that sound familiar? Mm. <laughs> you know, that, these are the things, these are the kind of insights that you come up, you come upon when you actually start studying uh, the fathers and what they said and what they were influenced by. So was, was Tertullian inf- influenced by Greek philosophy? Yes, he was. He was specifically influenced by Stoicism. But where that influences him uh, is in something that sounds very similar to um, what Latter-day Saints believe about spirit and matter. And, 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 and actually, the wording is almost exact. Now, I want, I want to run down this, you know, where, where the author of this article is, you know, because he doesn't have quotes around that. So I want to run down what he's talking about, where, where he's pulling that information from uh, about uh, Tertullian in particular, because um, one of the things that, that strikes me is Latter-day Saints will, will often say, you know, it's, it's unlikely that Joseph Smith was aware of any um, of these Christian arguments that, that happen in the early centuries or even uh, are happening around him. And yet the language that he ends up using is very similar to what you see elsewhere. So um, it, it kind of makes it makes you kind of begs the question, I guess, uh, because it makes you wonder how does he how does he how is he aware of languages so very similar uh, if if he's not aware of these things and not reading about them and not thinking about them and not studying about them, you know. Um, so anyway, thoughts on that? Yeah, no, that's great. I really appreciate that. Yeah, no, I, I don't really have anything to add to that. Um, uh, sorry, I'm switching back to the uh, to the article. I have too many tabs open. Okay. Uh, should we? So maybe should we talk about the uh, the second kind of paragraph where it talks about? Uh, well, we've kind of already talked a little bit about it, but the true nature of God the Father, His Son Jesus Christ, and the Holy Ghost was restored through the Prophet Joseph Smith. Um, as a consequence, Latter-day Saints hold that God the Father is an embodied being, a belief consistent with the attributes ascribed to God by many early Christians. So I was looking at uh, that footnote. Um, it says, the footnote says, for evidence of this belief among early Christians, see David L. Paulson, early Christian belief in corporeal deity, origin, and Augustine as reluctant witnesses. Um, 
so there's just that one reference for the increasing complexity of creedal formulations over time. See J. Stevenson, uh, creeds, councils, and controversies documents illustrating the history of the church. So it's interesting. They just have that one reference. Um, I'd be interested to go and actually read that, but it's from 1990. I'm not sure if that's going to be online or not. It might be. So what do you think about that? When it says that the true nature of God, the father, son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy ghost was restored. Um, and they, they hold that God, you know, as a consequence, Latter-day Saints hold that God, the father is an embodied being a belief consistent with the attributes ascribed to God by many early Christians. Do we see that in the Bible or in the early church fathers? Or, I mean, where do you think they might be getting that from? Well, I mean, according to their footnote, they're getting it from one article written by a Mormon philosopher, David L. Paulson. Um, bright guy. I've listened to him speak. I listened to, I remember listening to him speak. Uh, I think it was in two, I'm trying to remember what year it was. Um, they had uh, uh, the Library of Congress had a big, uh, I think it was 150th anniversary of Joseph Smith's birth, I think, maybe 2005. Is that, would that be 150? Some, I don't know. 175? I don't know. Anyway, I'm, I'm not good at math at this late on a Sunday evening. But um, in any case. It'd be the 200th, right? 200th. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, they, you know, David Paulson spoke there. Um, he's a very bright scholar, but um, you know, this, this sentence here that, you know, it's a belief consistent with the attributes ascribed to God by many early Christians. And they cite one paper by an LDS philosopher who talks about Origen and Augustine being reluctant witnesses Two reluctant witnesses. Doesn't sound like many early Christians to me. It sounds like a couple of early Christian theologians that, that an LDS philosopher thinks maybe said some things that suggest they thought God was corporeal. Um, but again, as we as we covered with Tertullian, right, he's coming to an idea that spirit is finer material, finer, a finer form of matter from Stoicism, Greek philosophy. So origin is coming at it from a Greek philosophical perspective as well, as we talked about in the Becoming Like God uh, Gospel Topics essay episode. So um, again, I, I would challenge Latter-day Saint scholars to bring forth more evidence than, than one, uh, one article in which uh, one of their own argues that two Christian fathers are reluctant witnesses to God being embodied. Um, bring forth more evidence than that, I, I, would, I would ask. Yeah. And, uh, I was briefly, I found that, so had, there's actually a part two also that, um, Paulson put out in 1995. I just did a quick Google search. And so he talks about that and, uh, he talks about how he thinks, uh, not only those two, uh, early church fathers, but he, he points to the old Testament. Um, uh, let's see. So he, many, he says many biblical passages straightforwardly describe God as embodied. For instance, Genesis one twenty six records that God made man in our own image after our likeness. Even more explicit are the many references to God's body parts, such as I, Jacob, have seen God face to face. They saw the God of Israel, and there and there was under his feet the Lord spake unto Moses face to face, and I will take away my hand, and thou shalt see my my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. That was Exodus thirty three. God also appears embodied in New Testament accounts of divine appearances. For instance, Acts seventy fifty six tells of Stephen seeing God and the son of man standing on the right hand of God. It is hard to imagine a being with a face, feet, hands, and back parts, but without a body. So that's the end of that quote there. So we've talked about that in the, 
in the episode on the Trinity, but just as a summary, uh, this phrase, seeing someone face-to-face was kind of a Jewish idiom, which means that you know someone intimately. So Moses was, you know, when he entered uh, the tabernacle or when he entered uh, the cloud on, on uh, was it Mount Sinai? No, it wasn't Mount Sinai. Uh, was it Sinai? Yeah, it was Sinai. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, it's been a long day. Mount Sinai. And then, uh, you know, when he says he would see his back parts, I mean, we would agree that that's, that's not figurative language. But uh, we would see that as a pre-incarnate Christ, not the father that, that he saw. And uh, in Acts 7.56, just to quickly to talk about that, when Stephen says he saw God and uh, the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God, if you read the whole passage, first it says he sees the glory of God. And that's one thing we brought up. Glory is, is described as light, as radiance, you know, uh, not as a figure, a, a person, with a, you know, with a body. So then the second time when it says the Son of Man was standing on the right hand of God, it's not standing on the right hand of God as a person. It's standing on the right hand of the glory of the Father, represented as light, power, you know, right, radiance. So that's kind of how I've addressed those. So those are very common arguments that I've seen LDS use to try to show an embodied Father. So I just kind of wanted to bring that up since I just happened happened upon that second article. And it might be interesting. I don't know how many people would be interested in us going over a 35-year-old article or whatever, <laughs> uh, you know, for the 1990, I guess that's only 31 years and then uh, 25, 26 for the uh, second part. But that might be interesting to talk about at some point. Um, yeah. Uh, did you have anything else you want to add? That's kind of all I wanted to mention. Yeah. So I think one thing I want to point out here uh, is that um, because I, I got into a, a conversation uh, the other day with the Latter-day Saint online, who was asking questions about uh, the Trinity and um making these same kind of arguments, you know, that the Trinity is a, is a post new Testament uh, development that it's not to be found in scripture and specifically making this argument that early Christian fathers didn't believe the Trinity. Um, what, what I want to point out is that, and I pointed this out to him that, you know, the early Christian fathers, while they, their writings can be instructive as we find with Origen and some others, some of their writings are problematic too and, and not consistent with scripture. And so an area that Latter-day Saints and evangelical Christians, I think, can agree is that the early church fathers are not inspired writers in the same way that the apostles were and the Old Testament prophets were. And so um, where that agreement lies, we can say uh, as I did to, to the, to the Latter-day Saint online, that although the early Christian church fathers are, it, it can be instructive to read their writings and understand how they were processing through Christian doctrine based on the scripture. Um, they're not our authority for truth. Uh, the Bible is our authority for truth. So the question of whether or not the Trinity was believed in its full form as, as explicated at the, at the, first at the the Council of Nicaea and then later uh, councils, whether or not the early church fathers believed exactly what was formulated and and put forth and and adopted at Nicaea doesn't matter. Um, The question is, can the doctrine of the Trinity, is the doctrine of the Trinity found in scripture? Does it flow out from scripture and from, from the teaching of scripture? And I would argue that it does, which is why the early church reasoned to it, because they were reasoning from scripture. Um, and so, you know, where the, where the charge is made that it, it, it comes from an admixture of Greek philosophy, I think Latter-day Saints have yet to prove that, 
Uh, I know they cite, you know, some some articles and some books written by uh, scholars who aren't Latter-day Saints to try to make that case. Um, and that case is largely made based on, you know, the fact that early church fathers argue for it using Greek philosophy. Um, but I think it should be kept in mind that it's not necessarily what you see there is not necessarily the early church fathers um, bringing in Greek philosophy to change scriptural doctrine. What they're doing is they're trying to explain Christian doctrine that they are getting flowing out from the Bible to a Greek audience uh, who understand and, and revere Greek philosophy and think in the ways of Greek philosophy. And they're trying to be missionaries and salt and light in that culture. And so, of course, they're trained in Greek philosophy. And so they use it. They try to explain things in, in ways that make sense to that culture, just as just as people do today, uh, draw analogies between things uh, today and to try to uh, explain Christian doctrine to people. So the question, again, to, to kind of sum up, the question is, does the does the Trinity flow out from Scripture? And I've, I've become convinced since leaving the LDS Church that it does, uh, as I've studied uh, through Scripture and studied uh, the the passages that that lead and led uh, early church, uh, early Christians to to uh, the doctrine of the Trinity. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for that. Appreciate that. that that's a good uh, capstone for that section. We thank you for tuning into this episode of the Outer Brightness Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Please visit the Outer Brightness Podcast page on Facebook. Feel free to send us a message there with comments or questions by clicking send a message at the top of the page, and we would appreciate it if you give the page a like. We also have an Outer Brightness group on Facebook where you can join and interact with us and others as we discuss the podcast, past episodes, and suggestions for future episodes, etc. You can also send us an email at outerbrightness at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon. You can subscribe to Outer Brightness wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're benefiting from our content, please write a review to help us spread the word. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit that notification bell. Music for Outer Brightness is graciously provided by the talented Brianna Flournoy and Adams Road. You can learn more about Adams Road by visiting their ministry page at adamsroadministry.com. worthy of the blood that Jesus shed. But now I know that all the works I did were meaningless compared with Jesus' lonely death on the cross where he bore sin. And now I have the righteousness that is my faith in Jesus' That stood opposed and nailed.
there for me And through the cross He put to death hostility And in His body reconciled Us to God and brought us peace And I am crucified with Christ And I no longer of the cross Some demand a sign and some seek to be wise But we preach Christ crucified A stumbling block for some The foolishness of God But wiser than the wisest man The power of the cross May I never boast except of our Lord through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world so I take up my cross and follow where Jesus leads oh I consider everything I lost compared to knowing Jesus of